This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio and iTunes. I'm Rose Fox and I'm a senior reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Mark Rotella, senior editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, author Joshua Davis discusses Spare Parts, the story of some talented and determined young roboticists. Then PW's Children Reviews editor, John Sellers, gives us an in-depth look at this year's winners of the major Children's Book Awards. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly Bestseller List, powered by Nielsen Bookscan. So there's not a lot happening on the fiction side. Uh, We have a new number two, which is Private Vegas by Mm -hmm. James Patterson. uh, And that was co-written by Maxine Petro. It's the ninth book in the Private series. Um, It's, as with all of Patterson's books, it's a thriller. And this time it's a murder mystery set in Las Vegas, where there's apparently a a gang of assassins who are gorgeous young women who... uh, can, as far as I can tell, get anywhere they like Mm. in Vegas simply by virtue of being gorgeous young women. Mm. Um, What's more interesting about this is that Patterson actually appears on the bestseller list a second time. In fact, he's in the top 10 a second time, down at number six, is Hope to Die, uh, which is the latest Alex Cross book. That's been on the list for 10 weeks. So um, I'm sort of wondering what is the most number of times James Patterson has been on the bestseller list at the same at, time. At the same time. You know, how, how many books has he had up there simultaneously? Um, is he ever like the number one, two, and three? Because it's, uh, right. it's really remarkable how much staying power these books have. Hope to Die um, has actually been moving up the list. Last week is at number seven. This week it's at number six. And some right. of that is just going to be about the numbers of the books around it. Right. right. But uh, it's still pretty impressive how well it's selling. Uh, of course, you know, the the difference between the book that's been out 10 weeks and the book that's just out is nearly a factor of 10. Private Vegas sold about 35,000 copies its first week out, mm-hmm. and uh, in the last week, um, Hope to Die only sold about 5,000 copies. So, oh, you right. know, it, it's, it's, uh, it's also a testament to, honestly, in some ways, just how little it takes to get on the bestseller list. Um, you know, 5,000 copies will put you comfortably there at number six. Right. So yeah. Sitting pretty. Now, does Patterson have uh, uh, writers who write for him? Does he yeah. Write? I yeah. mean, the, the Alex Cross books, um, like Hope to Die, are credited just to him as him. But uh, as I said, Maxine Petro co-writes the private series. Mm-hmm. He's got a number of other co-authors who work with him on the various series. And... Uh, how much writing he does himself, like the extent to which he contributes, is anyone's guess. Right. I've, I've no idea how that's arranged between him and his co-authors. You know, right. Maybe he writes out a plot on one page of paper and then he's done. Um, maybe he does the bulk of the writing and they fill in the details. Maybe they help with research. Who knows? There are lots of different ways sure. people can collaborate. Right. 
Um, and the only other notable new book is actually down at number 18, and that's The Mime Order by Samantha Shannon. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I always like seeing something that's unabashedly science fiction, you know, not a science fiction thriller, but just a solid science fiction novel showing up on the bestseller list. That's uh, my, my personal preferences mm-hmm. there. Um, the Mime Order is the second book in Shannon's series, which is supposed to be seven books total. Uh, and the first one was called The Bone Season. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's set in London in 2059, which is controlled by uh, a shadowy organization that uh, specifically outlaws and controls psychic powers. So it's a combination of futuristic SF and this uh, more psychic mental powers uh which is in some ways something we always think of as a superhero thing Mm -hmm. these days, but was also very prevalent in science fiction of several decades ago when there was less of a division between fantasy and and hard SF. Oh, interesting, yeah. Um, So this is a little bit of a a throwback there. Um, And she, uh, the the protagonist, has these mental abilities and um, has been forced to go underground where she is trying to take down the ruling orders. Of course, the question is what would happen if that power vacuum is created, what's going to rush in to fill right. it? Exactly. could yeah. be many things. could be indeed. So uh, our review says that the story starts slowly but quickly picks up speed, racing toward broadly telegraphed plot points in unexpected ways. And Shannon's world building is original and intriguing, especially the complex and almost mythic underground of clairvoyance. Uh, but this installment does rely heavily on knowledge of the previous one. Oh, okay. And so apparently... People would- We'll want to have read the one before. Yeah, but apparently there were enough people who did and liked it to put this one up on number 18 oh, on true. its first week out. Yeah. So what's happening in nonfiction? Well, uh, we have a new number one, and that is called, it's a business book called Zillow Talk, The New Rules of Real Estate by Spencer Raskoff and Stan Humphreys. This is based on Zillow, which is the uh, real estate website that has become increasingly popular mm-hmm. uh, to check uh, uh, what what the rates are in, uh, in or the, what recent sales have gone on in your neighborhood or one that you're looking into. Uh, we say with iconoclastic Bullions, uh, reminiscent of Freakonomics, Raskoff and Humphreys, respectively CEO and chief economist of Zillow.com, uh, exploit the online giant's massive database and sophisticated analytics to debunk conventional real estate wisdom. Hmm. Um, we, we, we do say that while it won't lead you step by step through the process of buying or selling a home, it, it is an intelligent and clever analysis of various facets of the market that will challenge and enlighten both professionals and those of us who just need a place to live in. So, um, uh, so that's it. That's at number one. That's interesting. Uh, do, they, do you know? Do they talk about house flipping? That's that's not a term that I've heard so much recently. But for a while, it was a very big deal and a very big factor in uh, real estate pricing. You know, it's uh, it, what they do talk about is uh, you, they they kind of debunk certain beliefs that you shouldn't necessarily buy the worst house in the best neighborhood. Mm. Uh, it, it, they say in quotes, "It's the worst house for a reason." So, so right. they kind of set you know just give you a you know certain guidelines about that. Uh, beware foreclosures. They say are not often the bargains they once were, uh, which might play into those kind of house flipping. If you were looking for foreclosures to right. buy a house and flip it, you may not. Uh, get into that and perhaps even be lulled into thinking that, well, because it's a foreclosure, it must be well below the market. You buy it, try and flip it, and you realize you can't get that much out of it anyway. Right. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So uh, at number seven, the next is um, 
Pioneer Girl, the annotated autobiography of Laura Ingalls Wilder. I've been hearing so much about this book. People are really excited about it. Yeah, it's true. And this came out, this was released December 30th, uh, and and now, it's only now debuted. Mm -hmm. uh, And it's a young adult uh, book, and it's, you know, annotated throughout, so... um, and and obviously it's uh it, it's selling pretty well. I up, wonder up what put seven. it on on the list this week and not the week before. Yeah, I had tried looking for that and I couldn't find any news item that that would have uh dictated that. Hmm, interesting. So, uh we have the next up number 8 just uh right behind the autoimmune solution, a revolutionary plan to prevent and reverse the full spectrum of symptoms and diseases by MD Amy Myers. She's a uh physician who once suffered from Graves' disease and she claims that conventional medicine has failed the more than 50 million Americans with autoimmune diseases and she puts forth the Myers way uh, and relies on four pillars which is uh healing the gut cutting out gluten and dealing with infections and stress and detoxifying the body. So those are the four pillars. Uh, uh, we say, though, Mars protocol requires discipline, uh, particularly difficult for vegetarians. Those with autoimmune disease issues should welcome this helpful and hopeful resource from a physician who walks her talk. All right. So at number eight, number 10, we have the Reaper. An autobiography of one of the deadliest special ops snipers. So snipers is obviously capitalizing on the American sniper fever. Right, exactly. And this is by Nicholas Irving. Uh, um, in uh, writing with Gary Brosek, uh, Irving, a former Army Ranger in Brosek, who has co-written many books, add to the sniper memoir genre a breathless, tension-filled account of the day-to-day combat experience of a sniper in Afghanistan. So, and, and that's at number 10. And you're absolutely right. It's kind of building in on the popularity of that. Now we have a cookbook at number 14. Desserts for two, small batch cookies, brownies, pies, and cakes. And by this is Christina Lane. And this is exactly that. When there's just two of you, you don't need to make a whole batch for an entire family. Well, or, uh, speak for yourself. <laughs> okay, well, maybe. <laughs> well, maybe one does. <laughs> All right. Well, some some of us might. But I, I do, actually. I love the smaller thing. You know, I'm the per- sort of person who makes a mug cake in the microwave. Um, oh, so, oh, that's great. So sometimes it's just dessert for one. Sure. Um, but I, I'm, I'm intrigued by this premise. Yeah. So anyway, so it's uh, they, they say cakes are baked in small pans or ramekins or mm-hmm. mugs, I'm sure, as, as uh, you've done. Uh, recipes are scaled down to make one dozen or fewer. So you still have a dozen of something. Oh, well, that of sounds a, like a plenty. Treat. Exactly. <laughs> Finally, at number 24, uh, in a starred review of ours, uh, it's called Ghetto Side, A True Story of Murder in America by Jill Levy. Uh, we say this absorbing first book, book from journalist Levy traces the investigation and prosecution of a 2007 murder in South Los Angeles, registering along the way a powerful argument about race and our criminal justice system. Uh, this is about 18-year-old Bryant Tennell, who was, quote, unquote, just another black man down. Readers may come to Levy's detective story. They will stay for her lucid social critique. So, Wow, that sounds intense. Yep. And yes. like maybe it deserves a little bit more attention than it's getting. Yeah, yeah. Though, though it's a good that, that it is on the bestseller list. So some at number 24, top 25. Yeah. Hopefully a few more people will pick that up. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Joshua Davis tells us how a bunch of kids built a very impressive robot against the odds. We'll be right back. 
Hi, this is Brandon Sanderson, author of the Reckoner series, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Welcome back. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Joshua Davis on the line. His new book is Spare Parts, Four Mexican-American Teenagers, One Ugly Robot, and the Battle for the American Dream. Hey, Joshua, so glad you could join us. Happy to be here. So tell us about the central story of your book. Well, uh, it's a story that I came across 10 years ago. Uh, almost exactly, in fact, it was uh, November 1st, 2004, when I got a press release. And it was a very strange press release. It was from an urban high school in Phoenix. Uh, and, and it was very hard to read the press release because there were all these grammatical errors and typos. And it was formatted strange. But it seemed to be saying that they had built a robot that had done something extraordinary. And I was intrigued. And so I called the school and I spoke to the mentor of the robotics team there, a guy named Freddy Lashvardi. And Freddy explained to me that uh, his group of students had come together with no budget, no training, uh, to build a underwater robot uh, that went up against the country's most elite uh, engineering programs. Uh, and remember that these kids were high schoolers going up against colleges, and the colleges, in, in, at least in the case of MIT, were sponsored by ExxonMobil, the world's largest corporation with a massive budget. These kids had no budget. And they didn't even have a swimming pool. They were in the middle of the desert. So it was a really, <laughs> you know, it was a really uh, in, in kind of crazy challenge. Um, but uh, despite that, there was something about each of these kids um, that, that was kind of a perfect storm of talent uh, that complemented each other. And they ended up building a robot that surprised everybody. So I, I wanted to ask first, so you, so you get this, this press release, which is grammatically incorrect, formatted a little bit oddly. Uh, you read it, and yet you decided to, 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 to go with it. Who, who wrote it, and what was it that, that made you decide to go with it, despite all this? Because I know so many of us get press releases, and, and if they aren't exactly evocative or, 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 or well-produced, we, we tend to ignore it. Well, the, the irony is that uh, the fact that it was not well-produced is actually what caught my attention. I, I, I've been a contributing editor at Wired for over a decade, and I was contributing editor at the time, and so I get a lot of, of these press releases, as, as you point out there, usually very slick. And I just pressed delete. So the fact that it had <laughs> errors uh, was, in fact, what caught my attention. Right. And I've only recently found out uh, the press release was sent to me by an Intel engineer. And for the longest time, I assumed that the engineer had written it. Uh, but I just found out that it was one of the teachers. <laughs> oh, <laughs> <It> wow. Was... <laughs> so, so uh, you know, uh, <laughs> yeah. it wasn't one of the students. It wasn't. So it was one of the teachers. So tell us about these students. You said there were four, four, four students with... Uh, uh, it was a perfect storm of talents. Who, who are they? Well, uh, there was uh, a kid named Lorenzo Santillan who um, had come out of a gang. Uh, he had been involved with drugs. And he realized that this was not a, a life that he wanted. 
uh, and so he got out of the gangs, but went looking kind of for a new family. And what was amazing about Lorenzo is that he had grown up uh, watching his family members run a ad hoc car repair business in their driveway. He had a, a cousin who would repair cars kind of on the fly with, with you know, no real parts and just kind of ingenuity. And Lorenzo helped it and intuited a lot of that attitude and, and gumption to say, like, look, well, we, we don't have the factory model part, but that doesn't mean we can't still fix it, you know, with this whatever piece of junk <laughs> right. uh, and actually come up with, a, with, with an effective solution. And so he had a real um, kind of on-the-ground mechanical engineering sense. I, I don't think mechanical engineers would necessarily immediately um, perceive that. But the reality is that he was building things, and he had to do it with nothing. And so he brought that ingenuity to the table. Um, this neighborhood where these kids are from, it's West Phoenix. It's, uh, you know, the school, Carl Hayden Community High School, has something like uh, roughly 85% uh, have free and reduced lunch, which means that 85% are at or below the poverty line. Mm. This is a very hard scrabble neighborhood. Um, and so the kids uh, who are coming out of this neighborhood have a lot of obstacles in their way, a lot of challenges. Uh, Oscar Vasquez was a kid who uh, always wanted to join the military. Uh, that was his dream. And yet he was born in Mexico, like the other kids uh, on this team. And their parents had brought them over as children, anywhere from age 2 to age 10. Uh, and so despite the fact that they had grown up in the United States and despite the fact that they viewed the U.S. as their home and went to American schools, they weren't technically American. Um, they were undocumented. And Oscar just assumed that if he was as good as he could possibly be, if he was the best cadet uh, on the high school's JROTC program, that would win the day. Uh, and yet when he applied uh, to enroll, or to enlist, uh, he was turned down. He wasn't a U.S. citizen. Uh, mm -hmm. And so coming out of that disappointment, he went looking for another team to lead. And that's when he found the robotics team. Uh, the third student on the team was Christian Arcega. Uh, and Christian was the was vying between the valedictorian and salutarian position, the number one and two position, um, GPA-wise at the school, just a really smart, book-smart guy, uh, and he had always dreamt of building robots. So when this robotics team was formed, it was a dream come true for him. And then the fourth and final member of the team uh, was a guy named Luis Aranda. Uh, Luis uh, came on the team in part because they were going to build a robot that was so big and so heavy and needed to be lifted in and out of a swimming pool uh, that they would need somebody big enough to pick it up. And Luis was a really big guy. It's so practical. Yeah. It, it, it just sounds, but it sounds like this lovely combination of sort of practicality and pure pie-in-the-sky idealism. Whose idea was it to create a robotics team at that school? It was the two teachers, uh, Freddie Lajvardi and Alan Cameron. Um, and to me, it was fascinating because uh, I think there's an instinct in education to look at a school that's very high needs a school that has a very significant population of ESL students, uh, significant poverty, uh, and 
and say, okay, we need to come up with kind of remedial solutions. Uh, we need to do remedial math. We need to do remedial English. Uh, but these teachers have the exact opposite perspective. They're like, nobody gets excited about remedial math. <laughs> you know, like, who's going to raise their hand for that? Right. The reality about education, they say, is that you have to inspire and you have to give kids challenges. Mm-hmm. And the more you challenge them, uh, the more they'll invest uh, in the education. And the education, the learning is almost incidental. You know, it happens along the way. If a kid is interested and excited, the learning will happen. And so these guys said, we're not just going to form a robotics team. We are going to enter our students in uh, the, the equivalent of the U.S. National Underwater Robotics Championship, mm-hmm. which is an event sponsored by the U.S. Navy and NASA. Uh, and it doesn't matter that we've never done it before. The bigger the challenge, uh, the more they'll learn. And it turns out it was, it was right. They were right. So I guess these kids that you wrote about aren't kids anymore. Where are they now? Yeah, they're all in their 20s now. It's been 10 years, um, and it has been a rocky road, mm-hmm. um, unfortunately. There, it was interesting. When the story, when I published a, an article in Wired back in '05, and at the time, uh, Hollywood came calling. You know, it's a, it's a story that, that is inspiring. They ended up building a robot that did extraordinarily well. And it's the type of story that Hollywood loves. And it took a while, but Hollywood has finally released a movie based on this story uh, and based on my reporting and based on the book. Uh, And yet the movie ends when the competition ends, which was June of 2004. Mm. And it leaves us feeling very hopeful and very inspired, which is what Hollywood does very well. Um, Unfortunately, reality is more complex, and in the intervening 10 years between when the contest ended and now, uh, there has been a real roller coaster of events. Uh, One of the kids was essentially deported. Mm. Uh Uh, One of them is unemployed. One of them uh, is a janitor, and one of them is a line cook. Um, that's not to say that it's uh, all bad news. Um, the two of the kids went to culinary school uh, and are forming their own catering company and and uh, and food bus, not a food truck, but a food bus. That's hmm. the scope of their ambition. <laughs> they're 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 upsizing, um, and they have big hopes and dreams. Um, and the kid who um, was essentially deported, uh, was able eventually to come back to the United States um, after much travail and has now landed a, a good job as a mechanical engineer. So it's a story uh, of struggle, um, and there are positives and negatives, and there's a lot of questions. The movie's just come out, and you just said that it was uh, picked up from your 2005 Wired piece. How much... Uh, contributing did you do to the movie? What was your involvement? Uh, I mean, obviously you were, you were writing. I don't know if you've been writing the book the entire time or when that started. Yeah, I've been I've been basically reporting the book for the past ten years. I would check in with the kids pretty much. I got to stop calling them kids now that they're no longer kids. <laughs> right, right. 
Yeah, at some point they they became guys. Um, I, I, I checked in with the guys pretty much every month um, over the past ten years, and I would go to Phoenix probably once a year, uh, maybe once every eighteen months uh, to go visit them, uh, and you know, so all the reporting that I did um, starting in 2004 until the film went into production, all of that went into the film. Uh, I consulted with the screenwriter and um, gave notes on the script and pointed out ways to, you know, make it more accurate. Um, You know, that was essentially my role. And our review of the book says that you examine the difficulties of these young immigrants in the context of those societal systems that they briefly and temporarily overcame. So as you say, it could have been very easy to do this as kind of a feel-good book. Why did you uh, choose to really look at the complicating factors and, and ground it more in the ambiguities of the real world? Because that, that was the truth. I mean, uh, I'm a reporter, and... I write what I see. And from 2004 until now, uh, there was extraordinary shifts in politics and, and um, kind of larger societal issues that had very direct impacts on these four kids and on many, many others just like them. Uh, and that was both um, hard to watch hard to watch them struggle um, and because of that it, it felt important to me to put a human face on the dialogue I think too often in politics as a, a kind of a knee-jerk reaction um, and we rely on a lot of stereotypes uh, and I certainly felt that back in 04 when I started reporting this uh, particularly in Arizona mm. there's a sense that people come to this country because they want to siphon off of Social Security or mm-hmm. they want to be lazy or they're criminals. Um, and what I was seeing in my own reporting was families who come here to work really hard uh, and contribute and build a better life and a better country. And it seemed important to me to tell that story and tell the story of how policies were affecting them on a minute-by-minute basis. I mean, for instance, Christian, um, the kid who was really book smart, uh, was able to gather together enough money to attend ASU, Arizona State University. Uh, But then in 2006, Arizona voters passed Proposition 300, which uh, tripled tuition for undocumented immigrants. Mm. Wow. And he ran out of money as a result and dropped out of school. And that is not a good outcome for him. Right. And it's not a good outcome for our country. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. 
Welcome back. We're talking with Joshua Davis, author of Spare Parts, and he's talking about his on-the-ground reporting from Arizona with all of the complexities around immigration. Um, this subject is a bit of a departure for you. Uh, you. You're known for reporting from dangerous places like Iraq in 2003, uh, and also for being a contributing writer for Wired, an editor for Wired, as you mentioned. Um, so what what was this what was it about this particular story that really took you away from all of the other things that you were working on at the time and grabbed your focus you know I, when i first called the school in uh, in december it was december 1st actually of 2004 and i spoke to freddy lajvardi the the teacher uh who was the mentor of the robotics team he told me that uh he had sent out hundreds of these press releases and granted the press releases were atypical uh, but nonetheless despite having sent it out to hundreds of, of places across the country they got zero response on a national level and they got one uh, local reporter to do a, a piece uh, on them uh, but then silence and this despite the fact that they had beaten the best engineers some of the best engineers in the country. Mm. And uh, so when I spoke to him, he explained to me that Carl Hayden, their high school, actually did get a reasonable amount of media attention. But the media attention they would get was because there was a gang fight mm. or because right. there was um, a bomb threat. Uh, and in fact, he explained that uh, there had been a gang fight somewhat recently. And the news crews had shown up, and they set up their cameras. And Freddie and his students decided to try to get them to pay attention to the good things they were doing. And so they drove a, a robot. They had a terrestrial robot. And they drove it over to the news crew, and they started driving circles around the cameraman. <laughs> <laughs> and, the, and the guy wasn't paying attention, so they eventually ran into his foot. Uh, and finally, they walked over, and they said, Look, we're, why don't you do a story about our robotics team? And the guy said that, the, you know, the robot looks cool, but that's not the story I was sent here to tell. Yeah. That's not why I'm here. Wow. And when I heard that, I felt compelled. I felt that I had to go there. Because you wanted to tell the story that was there and not the story that someone decided in advance you should tell. Exactly. Just going back to your first book, The Underdog, was a work of participatory journalism. So tell our listeners about that book and how it came that about. That book, in, in, in large part, describes how I became a journalist, um, which, you know, everybody, I think, or a lot of people anyway, have a kind of an unusual approach to how they, how they found their career and discovered what it is they wanted to do. Um, the same is, is true for me. Uh, I had studied economics, of all things, in college um, and made a series of disastrous financial decisions, uh, <laughs> despite my degree, uh, <laughs> which landed me in a lot of debt. Um, and so uh, I spent a, a number of years working jobs that were very uh, unsatisfying to me and had very little to do with anything creative. Um, and so the underdog tells the story of how I kind of charted a path out of that, um, mostly, uh, through arm wrestling. 
<laughs> this is not a conventional career path. <laughs> no, exactly. What a great metaphor. Uh, but, uh, but arm wrestling changed my life. It did. Uh, and, and it set me down a completely different trajectory that, that ended up leading me uh, to Iraq and to the war. Uh, and I had very little experience as a journalist when the war, um, when it looked like the war was, was about to happen. And I went and spoke to the editors at Wired, and I said that uh, I would be willing to go to Iraq. And they said, well, what kind of qualifications do you have? And I said, well, I'm an arm wrestler. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm sure that opens a lot of doors for you. Yeah, and I think fundamentally they just didn't have anybody else willing to go to the war. <laughs> it was a very short list, uh, which I was the only one. Uh, and and so they they ended up sending me, and when I got back, they um, put me on staff as a contributing editor. Uh, and so the underdog kind of describes exactly how arm wrestling came to play a big role in my life. Uh, and then subsequently, um, you know, I, I had found such a, a great group of people in the arm wrestling world that I was interested <laughs> to, to kind of keep exploring those cultures, and I ended up. Uh, becoming a sumo wrestler for a period of time, and uh, a backwards runner, and uh, and a whole variety of, uh, of kind of unusual athletic endeavors. And each of these that you were able to report on, then. So this is how that. I'm assuming this is how you were able to continue your your uh, yeah. uh, trajectory as a writer. Correct. Well, I mean, it was interesting because I, you know, I had established a, a career as a, as a as a reporter after Iraq, and I was doing, you know, a variety of, of stories for Wired those, throughout those years and for GQ. Uh, and and then in between, I would kind of take some time to try to get as fat as I could uh, to to get into the sumo ring, and I would spend the better part of a year. Uh, now, just on, just for listeners. Just for listeners, we, we're, you're talking about a sumo ring, and uh, uh, according to part of your biography, or at least this part of the book, you were uh, at the time 129 pounds, uh, five foot nine inches. So, not yeah, exactly I, I, sumo I gained, size. I gained some weight. Okay, I, weight. I, I got up to like 132. <laughs> <laughs> wow, <laughs> that, that that took a lot of work. Unfortunately, you know, it's kind of like the grass is always greener, right? But, Right. If you're really skinny, you want to be bigger, and if you're not skinny, you want to be skinny. So, for me, the <laughs> trying to get bigger was was my was my task. Um, yeah, so I, I am a very you know kind of skinny guy. So this was again. I think this is part of the reason maybe why the kids in Phoenix um, their story resonated with me because they were trying to do something that nobody really thought they would have any success at. Uh, and I had been doing the same thing kind of in my personal life, um, entering events that I didn't really belong in. Um, so there was, a, there was a lot of overlap in terms of sensibilities between us. So uh, how do you find these stories that you do? I mean, many of these have been, uh, you know, <laughs> turned into films or at least optioned by film companies. I mean, is it luck or do you just have a really good nose? <laughs> well, I, to me, it's, it's the real litmus test for a story is can you sit down with a, a group of people, and whether it's around a campfire or a dinner table or, you know, a classroom, 
Uh, and can you tell the story? And does it interest people? And I often try to do that before I decide to do a story. I'll, I'll kind of sit my own family down or I'll find some friends and I'll say, well, let me just tell you a story. And I can watch very, you know, kind of instantaneously if I'm losing their attention, then I know that, that you know, maybe the story doesn't work uh, quite as well as, as I might have thought. And it turns out, at least in my experience, that the ability to tell a story and really captivate us um, means that the story is, is kind of what's referred to in journalism as an evergreen story. It's something that will will work for a long time, and it turns out it will work in almost any medium. You know, it'll work in radio. Mm. It'll work in film. It'll work... Uh, as a TV show, it'll work as a piece of journalism. And each of those mediums have their own constraints and their own ways of telling stories. Uh, and so there's obvious adaptations uh, that, that come along. But at the heart, if there's a compelling story, it kind of works across media. And I just, on a personal level, I like telling those kinds of stories. I like telling campfire stories. That's what captivates me personally. So... I think just naturally I'm drawn to those stories and, and those stories also just naturally work in different media. And um, we're running short on time, so I'm going to ask you a complicated question that you may not have time to answer fully. Um, but you often report from, from a, a bit of an outsider's perspective, you know, going to Arizona, going to Iraq. Um, what ethical guidelines do you follow when you're telling other people's stories? Well, uh, you know, I do... I spend a lot of time reporting, uh, and then I go back. Uh, I'll write what I write uh, based on the reporting, and then I'll go back and and go through it with the subjects and say, is this accurate? Is this accurate? Oftentimes the magazine will do that as well, um, you know, or almost you know, all, pretty much every magazine fact checks. Um, so you know, there's multiple layers of trying to make sure that the facts are straight. Um, and, you know, it's interesting. When I publish a story or publish a book, there's times when, there's many times when the subject of the story will be very upset with me. Hmm. Um, and sometimes that lasts. Uh, and, and other times it's a it's kind of a, it's a fleeting thing where it can sometimes be startling when you hold a mirror up. Uh, and see yourself in a way that uh, you hadn't really perceived before. And then over time, uh, you, know, you recognize the truth in it. And so there's been a number of instances where people who've been angry at me at first have, over a period of weeks, um, written me or called me back to say that they recognized the, the, the reality of, of what I was reporting. Um, but yeah, it, it's, you know... It's hard to go into people's lives and um, and tell exactly what what's going on. Um, that can be emotional, and it can be, in some cases, even dangerous. Well, I'm, I imagine you do your best to just uh, face up to that challenge and and balance the competing needs, you know, both to to tell the whole story and to make sure you're not putting anyone else at risk. Yeah, I mean, specifically in this story, uh, in, in Spare Parts, when I found out, I didn't, by the way, know that they were undocumented when I 
mm. first responded to the story. It wasn't until I got there and started reporting that I realized that they had immigration difficulties. Uh, and it seemed fundamental to who they were and, and to the, the story of their accomplishment. Uh, and so I realized at the same time that in reporting it, um, it could put them in jeopardy. It could get them deported. And so I had a conversation with the students and with the teachers, and I said, look, uh, exactly that. I, I think this is an important fact, but I realized that that it could get you in trouble. And so uh, I would like your approval to be able to report that. Um, and the teachers recommended that the students not uh, agree to it. Uh, but the students went home and they spoke to their families and they came back the next day and uh, Oscar said that they had discussed it and they had decided that this was a Rosa Parks moment. Wow. Where wow. they just couldn't ignore it anymore. They had to tell the truth. Well, I just got goosebumps. What was it? What was it like hearing that from from a teenager, from these these earnest kids? I felt like I needed to do my very best to tell this story, uh, and that's part of the reason why I've stuck with it for ten years. My goodness! Wow. Well, we've been talking with Joshua Davis. You can find his book Spare Parts in stores right now, and also there's the movie that just came out by the same title. Joshua, thank you so much for joining us and telling us your story. It's my pleasure. I'm Mark Rotella, and I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Children's Reviews editor John Sellers explores this year's Newberry and Caldecott winners. So stay tuned. This is Grey McAllister, author of The Magician's Lie, and you are listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Welcome back. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors, and today PW Children's Reviews editor John Sellers is here to tell us all about the winners of this year's major children's book awards. Hi, John. Hey, guys. How's it going? Going very well. So um, what have you brought for us? Yeah, so uh, this past Monday, they announced this year's uh, American Library Association's Youth Media Awards. Uh, These are announced every year at the American Library Association's uh, Midwinter Conference. Uh, It was held this year in Chicago. Snowy Chicago. Yes. uh, Good place for a midwinter event. People had uh, trouble getting in and they had trouble getting out, uh, including some PWS staffers, I think. Um, But they they always announce these major children's book awards there every year in number of categories there's i think close to 20 different awards i was awards. gonna say there's there's you know more than a dozen certainly. exactly and, and there's there's a lot and uh the the big i would say the big three maybe are, are considered to be the uh, the newberry the caldecott and the prince um, mm. but there's many many others and, and lots of different categories besides right. that so tell us about the winners yeah so uh this year the the newberry medal went to a novel called the crossover the, the author's name is kwame alexander and it's a novel in verse uh meaning it's sort of written in poems and it's uh, basically about a boy and his brother who are both basketball players and their sort of tense relationship with each other and also their father. Mm-hmm. Um, so that one, the Newberry. And tell us a little bit about the Newberry. What's, what, what is the Newberry? Tell yeah. our listeners. Sure. So the Newberry is uh, awarded each year for what, what's considered to be the sort of most outstanding or most distinguished contribution to the field of ch- children's literature. Mm. So this is for uh, an author, this award goes to. And um, I would say that they, they tend to be sort of in that sort of middle grade category. I believe it goes up 
214, is mm -hmm. maybe right? Um, but in any case, uh, they, uh, you know, it aims for sort of a, a middle, I don't say middle of the road, but a broad audience. And it's, it's, it's again, for an author, it's sort of the most distinguished book of the year. Right. Um, there's always one chosen, and there's often several honor books. Um, there were two honor books uh, chosen for the Newbery this year. Uh, one is El Defo uh, by C.C. Bell. It's actually, it's a graphic novel, and mm -hmm. I actually talked about it uh, the last time I came on the show with you guys. Oh, mm -hmm. great. Uh, as a book that maybe might be getting attention this time of year. Yeah. And it did. <laughs> and, and the other is uh, Brown Girl Dreaming mm -hmm. by Jacqueline Woodson. And that was, I would say that was actually the, probably the front runner to actually win the Newberry this year, and it got an honor instead. And uh, the crossover, I think, was maybe a surprise for a lot of folks, but mm -hmm. a, a wonderful book. We started, it was one of our best books of the year last year. Um, great, great book. I, I saw someone tweeting a picture of the cover of Brown Girl Dreaming, basically obscured by all the foil stickers for all of it, the honors. It's it has earned. at least four yeah. awards. It won the National Book Award late last year, right. so it's it's done very, very well, and it is littered with stickers. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so that, that, that was the Newberry this year. Um, the Caldecott Medal, which is an award for illustrators and artists, um, often goes to picture books. Um, right. And this year the winner was a book called uh, The Adventures of Beekle, The Unimaginary Friend uh, by Dan Santat. Mm -hmm. um, he's a fairly prolific illustrator. He had never won a Caldecott before, first time for him, uh, first time for uh, uh, Kwame Alexander in the Newberry category as well. Um, this was also, I would say, maybe uh, a surprise Mm -hmm. To some folks, it, you know, again, a very a book that did uh, you know got very good reviews, very well liked, um, but I'm not sure in a lot of the sort of uh, pre awards chatter. And there's a lot of it, a lot of these sort of mock polls that um, different folks and right. magazines hold in in the lead up. Um, I'm not sure if it was as buzzed about as some other books, but again, a very a wonderful book. I actually got to speak to Dan earlier this week for a story for P for PW just to hear about the experience of getting the call and you know mm -hmm. what it was like. And he's someone who, you know. He's a very hardworking illustrator, but not someone who necessarily has been racking up the awards for years. So it's it's uh, very nice to, to see some acknowledgement. And, um, and he, when is the story coming out? <laughs> well, it, it, it is out. You can uh, you can see it on the website <laughs> on PW's website. We uh, ran it in Children's Bookshelf on Tuesday. Great. Um, yeah. And uh, but yeah, he, he was I mean he was floored and unexpected. The call comes very early, no matter what. And he's based on the West Coast, so he he said that he was up till two a.m. working on you know projects the night before, and mm. at four thirty got the phone call. <laughs> 4.30 so, in the morning? Yeah, wow. so two and a half hours of sleep. Okay, so I'd be a little annoyed at someone who called me at 4.30 in the well, morning to tell me I'd won an award. When, it, when it's the Caldecott Committee, <laughs> yeah, you know, right. you, you, you got to suck it up. Fair enough. But, um, but anyway, so it was really great to talk to him about yeah. that uh, this week. So that was uh, the, the Caldecott. And then... Um, well, oh, were, what, were there runner-ups for the Caldecott? There were. And, so, there, and which one was the forerunner then, according to all the, uh, um, the, the chatter out there? I'm not sure if there was one specific one, but... Um, there were one of the interesting things. There were uh, Caldecott honors, um, yeah. and there were actually six, um, which is a very high number of mm. honors. Uh, a lot of, of course, librarians are in attendance to, to see these uh, the awards live. But everybody right. else, the rest of us, tune in via a webcast that's broadcast, you know, live um, as the awards are announced, because nobody knows until that moment really who these are going to be. Right. Uh, that's kept very, very much under wraps, and so you. Part of the fun is hearing the response in the crowd to when you know the winners are announced and things like that. And so, when um, when they announced that there were only two Newberry honors, there were the audience was kind of aghast. I would say. <laughs> it's not it's not uncommon necessarily, but you know these are people who love books so much, and you want to see all your favorites awarded. So to hear right. that there were only two honors, uh, you could just hear <laughs> the, the, the sort of shock. Uh, right. uh, conversely, with the uh, with the Caldecott, people were like going ballistic that there were six honored books. Right. Um, 
And so I can I can list off the titles if, if that's uh, if you'd like. Sure. Uh, we've, we've got um, a book. Uh, picture. These are all well, not they're not all picture books. Five are picture books and one is not. Um, we've got Nana in the City by Lauren Castillo. Uh, the Noisy Paint Box, which is about uh, the artist uh, Kandinsky, mm-hmm. uh, by um, the the artist there was Mary Grand Prey and the author was Barb Rosenstock. Uh, Sam and Day, uh, Dave Dig a Hole by John Klassen and Mac Barnett. Viva Frida by Yuji Morales. Um, the Right Word by Jen Bryant and Melissa Sweet. And This One Summer, which is a graphic novel, um, which is uh, by cousins uh, Marie- Mariko and Jillian Tamaki. Um, mm. To have a, a YA graphic novel as a Caldecott winner is unusual. Mm. And I think people are, and not in a bad way, but I think people were surprised, but delighted. I mean, that was easily one of the most accoladed books of the past uh, year, this, this, this graphic novel right. um, that came out. So, um, you know, when the Caldecott is just for illustration of any kind, right? So it it's certainly plausible for uh, a graphic novel to to be on the list. Like they didn't have to change the rules or anything. Nope, like that. not at all. Uh, it's just um, I think it's been a bit of a, a slow burn just for um, graphic novels to sort of get sort of recognition in mm-hmm. these awards. Period. And and this year you've got um, in both the Caldecott honor with this one summer and a Newbery honor with uh, El Defo. So a good year for graphic novels to sort of make a, a nice showing in some of these major awards. Um, and along those lines, it was also just a, a good year for, you know, we talked again before about the, the sort of the wide variety of awards here. You've got, you know, the Coretta Scott King awards, which are really books, um, aimed at sort of African-American culture and mm-hmm. experience in sort of celebrating that, uh, the poor Bell prey, which are for Latino, ca- uh, culture and heritage, the, the Stonewall Book Awards for the GLBTQ community and all these sort of things, and sometimes there's a there's a conversation out there that you know too many books that are you know reflecting these experiences are relegated to these sort of these awards, and they're completely wonderful honors on their own, but they're not necessarily the Newbery and the Caldecott in terms of the tradition. And this year, you really saw a lot of um, books featured in those top categories that you know normally. Might, you might expect to see in right, the Stonewall right. category or as a uh, Credit Scott King honor. So they, they really weren't ghettoized. They weren't. It was, it was a really good year for, for diversity and coming on the heels of all the diversity conversation in the past year with We Need Diverse Books and all of that. Um, I think that these awards did a pretty remarkable job and people are pretty pleased with that. Um, also, I think women had a really strong showing and, uh, mm. you know, and sometimes with the Caldecott, there's a lot of uh, wondering about like, you know, are women illustrators being represented as, mm. as right. you know, and granted, you know, uh, Dan won the, the major award, but you look at the, the, the Caldecott honors and only one book has male uh, contributors uh, or one male artist. So hmm. um, it was a good year for that as well. Interesting. Yeah. And and the third prize you were talking about. Uh, we've, there's then for the YA uh, in the YA world. There's the the Prince, and that book went to a novel by Jandy Nelson called "I'll Give You the Sun." Mm-hmm. Um, it's book basically narrated in two pr- through the perspective of, of two twin siblings, a boy and a girl, and they're sort of set in different time periods, and they're sort of weaving their way toward this event that sort of kind of drove a wedge between them. Right. And. Uh, lovely book I think it was also one of our best books of the year um, and that one has uh, the male character in that book is gay so you know in his uh, his romantic life plays a big pretty big role in, in that story so again a sort of GLBTQ theme right. you know being recognized in one of the major book uh, right. one of book awards of the year so no spoilers but does, does he get a happy ending because I feel like in some ways that's such a a, a a bridge that we still have to cross that we we can now have queer stories but they're still so often sad queer stories mm-hmm. 
Um, you know, this is a queer story that has some sad moments, but I don't think, uh, without spoiling anything, I think it's not a, uh, it doesn't fit into some of those uh, unfortunate tropes that we do see out there. It's not a downer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that's wonderful. That's yeah. great to know. Um, so what else happened at, uh, at LA that was of, of any interest to our listeners? Any other big news? I mean, there are lots of other awards, obviously, and I'm sure we have the whole list up, but... Yep, uh, lots lots of big awards. Um, I think also, in, you know, in addition to the sort of uh, the good showing of sort of a lot of various sort of diverse voices and perspectives being reflected in the winners, um, it wasn't a bad year for um, for small presses, which is mm-hmm. nice to see. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, you know, a lot of, of course, a lot of the winners, and especially in these big categories, are a lot of big press books. But you did see some really strong showings from from. Uh, books from smaller houses, non-New York City houses, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the awards that's become very, um, I don't want to say popular, but uh, gets a lot of attention in recent years is, is a relatively new uh, award called the William C. Morris Award. Mm-hmm. And that is goes uh, that honors uh, debut authors, first-time authors. Right. And when I look at the, uh, the winners there, actually... Uh, well, almost every, none of them are, they're, they're all moderately small press books. You have one from Candlewick, which is Boston-based and, you know, established. Um, Egmont, which is uh, sadly shuttering its uh, U.S. operations. <laughs> but, uh, and then, mm-hmm. but then we have, you know, uh, Carol Rhoda in Minnesota, Cinco Puntos, which won with uh, its novel, uh, Gabby, A Girl in Pieces by Isabel Quintero. Um, mm-hmm. that, t- that took home the actual award. And they announced the Morris finalists earlier, but it's still news to find out which one becomes the winner right, which right. we found out last Monday and then uh, another company called Elephant Rock so just in that category alone um, of debut authors you know um, smaller presses made a really strong showing this year right. and that really makes a difference to what librarians and booksellers are going to stock I imagine yeah I mean, th- these, these awards are so great for just bringing attention to books that um, you know may, may otherwise you know not get the sort of attention that maybe they deserve and of course there's so many deserving books out there that you want to bring attention to but when you look at a book like let's say the crossover um which you know won the newberry wonderful book accolades all over the place but not you know you know you never know if what's gonna what's gonna hit home and i don't think it had nowhere near the buzz that say jacqueline woodson's brown girl dreaming did this year but now with this win i think it will bring a book right. that's you know a by an african-american author b an, a novel in verse and you know also just a lot of fun and, and but with, with some really deep weighty uh emotional issues in there and bring it to an audience that it really wouldn't have had otherwise i think right, right. Yeah, okay, that makes a lot of sense and in general, how do these uh, awards influence purchasing? Do you think seeing that medal on the cover of a book really makes a difference to a parent? I think so. I think there are definitely parents out there who, um, uh, you know, buy based on, like, let, let's look for those big medals and see what, um, uh, you know, what, what do I want to buy for my child? And um, certainly bookstores are, you know, maybe going to, you know, try to order up as much as, the, you know, what they can uh, just to get it out there. Um, you know, these awards, people pay attention to them yeah. even outside the publishing community. I don't know how many you know, parents are sitting at home, but I know even from my own Twitter feed that you've got um, uh, teachers mm, showing showing the, sure. this, this webcast live on a Monday morning in class. Like, let's all pay attention and no see. No kidding, yeah. really. No, that's yeah. cool. That's so, great. Um, I mean, the thing is, there's just, there's just so much energy and excitement around the children's book world right now. And a lot of it is, I think, fostered you know, by the Internet and Twitter and things right. like that where you can really have these communities uh, exist in a really strong way and so when you have something like this that's free and available for anybody who might be interested um, there's just a lot of people who are really excited about these books and authors and especially 
when you now have uh, more access than ev ever to authors through the internet or through right. Twitter and things like that. It just, I think it just fosters this closeness that certainly wasn't there when I was growing up. <laughs> right. Absolutely. But. So do you, do you know how the judging process works? I mean, there's so many books out there, even if you're narrowing it down to debuts or illustrated books, it still must just be a huge, huge stack. It is. It's a huge, it's a huge, um, uh, endeavor. Um, each of these awards has uh, generally its own committee, um, mostly librarians and other sort of um, industry experts or you know, in literature experts, things like that. But librarians are really a core part of it. And they spend a, the year really deliberating wow. and working and reading and debating and sort of, and each committee has its own uh, procedures. And, um, you know, there are certain strictures in place, you know, who is for eligibility for various things that you know that varies from award to award but it, it's a long you know it's a long involved year-long process i've never served on any of these committees personally but um you know they each have their own committees they keep it very under wraps very much separate mm -hmm. um you know they're not telling their spouses who won the night before you know it's it's they really do keep it um, wow. really hammered uh, or, or kept close rather yeah <laughs> right that makes a lot of sense. Well, thank you for coming and giving us the rundown. Absolutely. And uh, it'll be interesting to see. Uh, I guess we're pretty much done with awards for um, these books at this point. And we could see, is, are there any medals left for Brown Girl Dreaming to pick up? I think, <laughs> yeah, I think maybe it got them all. Has, it, has it maxed out? You know, all, all the best book awards are out. All the, uh, you know, with, between the National Book Award and these, I think it might, uh, might have picked up the max that it can. And I think people are already starting to handicap, uh, you know, early favorites for next year. Right. Oh, boy. <laughs> wow. wow. We never stop. All right. Well, thank you so much, John. Thank you, John. Thank you, guys. It's always great to have you on the show. And now a final word from our sponsors. Hello, this is Gay Talese. I'm the author of The Bridge, and you are listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for an interview with Naomi Barron, the author of Words on Screen. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can find this in every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio on our website at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and also on iHeartRadio and iTunes, available for you to listen absolutely free. Check the site every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 